Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we read stuff that you might have heard of and didn't bother to read. My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hello. And this time around, we- I, I swear to God we picked this book months ago. Yep. Uh, just as a heads up, this is a book about a bunch of people stranded in a location, unable to go outside, and slowly going, you know, uh, stir-crazy, as it were. Yeah. Also, um, there's serious diseases, um, apocalyptic and pandemic themes. Oh, I I wasn't even gonna do all the content warnings yet, but- Oh no, I was just talking about the specific ones. Right. That's not where you're at. That's totally okay. We'll catch you later, or not ever, if that's okay. We'll just catch you in a different episode. Yeah, we've got a real treat coming up next time we do Drunk Book Club, so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so just. we'll look for you there. Just coach where you're at and do what feels right for you. Stay safe. Now, that being said, now we're going to scare everybody else away. <laughs> With the rest of the content the... warnings. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, because this book is by Chuck. Uh, Polaniuk. The Fight Club guy, you might know him as. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what Fight everyone... Fight Club is one of his lighter works. Yeah. I tried to read one of his short story- his actual short story <laughs> collections once, and it opened up with the story about him going to, you know, a degenerate festival of some nature and watching a woman get eaten out by a dog. So, like, that's the space we're playing in right now. Oh, so him and Anne Rice. No, that was a cat. Uh, yeah, the name of this book is Haunted. It is from- from 2005. The content warnings are everything, but to yeah. be more specific. Well, there's the one where in 05, too soon, mm-hmm. terrorist bombings using airplanes. A lot, a lot of body horror uh, around disease, sexual assault, decay, uh, maiming. Fatphobia. Uh, some really, really horrific transphobia. Just a lot of general misogyny because it's a Chuck Palahniuk novel. Yeah, and he hates women. So much. You already hit the decay imagery, which is one of the things I found actually more appealing about the book. <laughs> I mean, it's evocative. He's je- he's one of the few authors who can actually gross me out, which is something. A lot of uh, child sexual assault. Gross sexuality in general. Just sexuality included for the purpose of repulsing you. This is in no way erotic, but there's sexuality all through it. Cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> Just cannibalism, mutilation, self-mutilation, miscarriage. Animal death. Did we- we probably missed something. I don't think there's any bestiality. Which, uh, if I have to say that sentence and plumb my thoughts for that, this- that should let yeah. you know what kind of book this is. Yeah, I'm like, sorry. the fact that I can't say for certain, no, there's no bestiality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's general ableism and classism. Yeah. A lot of repulsive. So much racism. Jesus oh, Christ. yeah. Is that uh, anti-abortion sentiments? But at that point, that's just like a small right. pebble on top that, of everything else. I that's any of his fucking business. Uh-huh. At all. Yeah. Um, because he makes it very clear that that will never be his business. Was this before or after he was out? I believe it was. After he a shit fit. After. I think that was 03. Check the Wikipedia page about his personal life. I was just today having a conversation about Fight Club with someone who didn't know he was gay. And it was wild. Not a face-to-face conversation. Just a- a- Okay, no. Texting. Uh, this- That was just before this. That was 04. Okay, so probably this was written while he was still closeted. But it was a wild conversation because it just never occurred to me. That it was possible to watch Fight Club without 
the being incre- aware of the incredible amount of subtext <laughs> that even through Fincher's filter mm-hmm. is present. <laughs> and he's still publishing novels. I checked. The, the most recent one came out in 2018. By the way, while I was Googling before the start of this episode, did you know that there's a Fight Club 2? Okay. The narrator has a canonical name now. Boo. Or rather, it's the name that he's using. Boo. Uh-huh. I knew so many people who ha- who just couldn't handle the narrator not having a name, could not handle writing Tyler slash narrator masturbation fix, so they just went with Jack. What else are you going to do? Sorry, spoilers. If they don't... <laughs> Listen. I know that we're old and eventually the things that we assume are common knowledge will eventually no longer be common knowledge. But I'm putting my foot down that if you're listening to this show and you didn't know the twist of Fight Club... Also, The Matrix is a simulation. <laughs> and Bruce Willis was a ghost. <laughs> but there's also a Fight Club 3. Are they just called that? No, they're sequels. But, like, are they just called yes. that? Like, books that are called... Oh, X- no, 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 they're comics. But they're called that. Yeah. That's not how you name books. Who did the art? Let's uh, find out. Oh, I hate you for putting this this evil on me. <laughs> Art by Cameron Stewart. I don't know who that is, but I'm sorry for them. Mm-hmm. All of which is to say, there's a fucking lot to unpack about a Chuck Palahniuk TM novel. Yeah. Which is why we drink. Yep. Oh, and just general filth. Oh, Not yeah. Not the fun John Waters kind. No. No, really grody, unpleasant, hateful Oh, eating thing. disorders. Oh, yeah, shit. All the eating disorder trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. I don't think he knows what an eating disorder is, but... But that's in there. I feel like if you have one... So what are we drinking? I had a lot of trouble coming up with a drink for this. Not, not least... Not just because we're locked in the house, <laughs> but because food deprivation is a theme in the book, and there's no descriptions of food. There's no description of flavor. Nothing tastes like anything. It's like the one sense he's not bothering to write. He doesn't really write scent either, because this is a very visual book. And I'll bitch about that later. <laughs> um, so finally, I just had to go with a peach flavor, because there's this one little interlude where they start referring to dying light bulbs as peaches. It is a whole very, it's a whole extended and ultimately pointless interlude. And it feels very, my, my editor made me write a scene where not everything was happening all the time. I mean, I can see how in a book that was more tightly written, it would be very um, pointless activities in the last days of the Romanovs. Because it has that element of opulence and yeah, pointlessness but... in routine. But it doesn't, It but this book is, this book is the book form of the cardinal rule of no horror movies over two hours. Mm-mm. You want to know how long this book is in paperback? Too fucking long. It is. Also, it glows in the dark. Oh, yeah. Sure. Fuck does. Oh, wait. No, that's including the afterword. Uh, Without the afterword, it is 404 pages. That's, children, too long for a book like this. Yeah. Like, there are longer horror books. 
but they're king style horror books. King style horror books are also too long. They but are, I take your point. But like structurally, I also used as the base liquor moonshine. I did not make this moonshine. This was moonshine I purchased from a legitimate vendor of spirits. But it seems fitting with the vibe. There is peach liqueur. The mixers are orange juice and peach juice with a little splash of lemon juice just to give it a bit of a tang. And I also threw in a bit of um, raspberry liqueur just because I have it lying around, but it's totally unnecessary. It's good shit. It just makes it look more peachy. Uh, Yeah, I feel like I should mention that I first read this book when I was an edgy teenager, which is when all people encounter Haunted and think it's brilliant. I know so many people who read it as edgy teenagers and thought it was brilliant. And then they're like, hmm. And then some of them make the mistake of reading it again. (laughs) I mean, I knew it was a mistake before we started reading it again. But here we are. I mean, I will say there are part like big swaths of this book even that I still kind of enjoyed reading because it took me I feel like there's something about the the specificity of how this book is written that if you combined it with Anne and uh and a little dash of Stephen King in there you would have the perfect distillation of me as a shitty teenager the thing about Polaniuk is he's a very skilled writer he is very skilled and practiced and good at executing excellent uses of words to create very specific, concrete images and moments. I'm not saying he's a good writer, because he doesn't use that skill to create anything interesting. Uh-huh. Like, his, his work sticks with you. He's very good at what he does. But this... It doesn't amount to anything because there's such a misanthropic, useless vibe. I'm beginning to think it's a uh, a thing with all of the writers I liked as a teenager who were all writers who were very good at crafting these incredibly potent moments in very specific detail. And none of them could write an ending for shit. I mean, you can just say Gaiman and King. Yeah. I'm sorry, was I not clear (laughs) about the fact that I meant Gaiman and King? (laughs) I think I got a good 150 pages into this book. Like, oh, maybe I'll end up recommending this as kind of dumb fucking fun. If you can handle all of the the grotesquery of it. And then it kept going. And then it kept going some more. Yeah, because this this book is not a novel. This is 17 short short stories in a trench coat. (laughs) There's even a little count alongside every every chapter to let you know which one you're on Mm -hmm. to let you know how much there is left as your eyes keep straying towards that margin you just keep counting down and poems Mm -hmm. there are poems yep every chapter also gets a poem which again when you're a teenager who's never seen extremely produced isn't the word but it is you know it, it's definitely heavily structured. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, very, it's very much drawing attention to its structure and style. Yeah. Like, that seems very cool when it's the first type, thing of that type you right. run across. Because he has so carefully structured it so that everything ticks over in this order of three steps. There's always a moment 
in the present of the narrative, then a poem about the person that the, the camera is pivoting to, and then they tell their story. And then we get a little more of the present narrative, a poem about the next person who, who steps into the scene to be an asshole, and then their story. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, like, I'm an asshole who loves gimmicky bullshit. So for a while, once again, I was into it. And then it's 400 pages long. Yeah. Um, He says in the afterword that he basically, he wanted to write a series of short horror stories about ordinary objects. A bowling ball, like, a diamond ring, popcorn, a gimmicky plastic exercise wheel. Fittingly enough, writer's retreat, prompt bullshit. Yeah, because this is about a writer's retreat. Yep. Fry, you went to a retreat once. I did. Take this away. Oh my god. I mean, it's not wrong, is the thing. Um, You got an awful lot of fingers. I do. I still have all my fingers. I'm very proud of that fact. I was not at a particularly um prestigious writer's retreat. It was not hosted at the house of any dead people. Uh, It, it went the other way, where it was... I spent a month in Iowa on a very crunchy bit of farmland and at the, you know, with four other people and we did some work down at the co-op to earn our keep. And then at the end of it, there was a little show at the local gallery in the very small town. It was fun. It was very weird energy where everyone is talking about their project all the time, but also getting very little done. So, you know, spot on. Yeah, that, that's what we're all doing right now. But also I had a good time. I mean, we're all doing that now. Uh-huh. We are all living haunted. Yeah. And that's the other thing about this is I do kind of love the premise of this book. Where you're, you didn't expect to actually be locked away. Oh, he starts this off with an epigraph from the Mask of Red Death, by the way. Again, where we also have color coded rooms. It's about 17 people who get on a bus because they've all heard about this retreat where they're going to leave their lives behind for three months. And they're going to write their masterpiece with no other distractions and no other excuses to not do it. And then they will emerge into the world, you know, victorious and successful and sell the rights and be famous and accomplished artists ever after. So naturally, once they get to this theater, uh, they are, you know, locked in and they immediately set about sabotaging themselves so that the story of how they got famous will be more dramatic. And here's the thing, I fucking love that. I have met enough narcissistic assholes in the arts community that it's completely on point to me. (laughs) Um, Their captors are Mr. Whittier, who is grotesque because he uses a wheelchair. Yep, that ableism again. And is elderly, except he's not elderly. Nothing about Mr. Whittier makes sense. Yep. Oh, it's a great twist until you think about it for five seconds. Until you think about any part of it. Yeah. Of any of it. Like all the theater sets, it is just so much scrim and paper mache. She looks so pleased and with herself. And if these shadows have offended. This this isn't Midsummer. It's possibly <laughs> Midsummer, But what it is, is it's Plato's Allegory of the Cave. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he read that one somewhere. I bet that he did. Uh, so, Mr. Whittier and the woman who takes care of him, Mrs. Mrs. Clark. Clark, who is grotesque because she has big fake boobies and collagen lips. And is a woman. And is a woman, yes. But she has big fake boobies and this makes her I- inherently distrustworthy. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, they all immediately be, uh, sabotage all of the food so that they will slowly begin to go hungry and, you know, their suffering will be a little more dramatic. And then Mr. Whittier dies. and Ms. Well, but Mr. Whittier dies and yet we keep getting these, like, different bits of wisdom from Mr. Whittier throughout the narrative. Even though, like, there's no rational situation where he would have been able to dispense these gems of wisdom to them. But before he dies from eating too many dehydrated um, turkey tetrazzini dinners. Expanded in his stomach because that's how physics work. And ruptured his insides. And then they transport, they wrap his body up. Put it in the basement. And put it in the basement. Mm-hmm. And somebody fucks with the heat, somebody fucks with the cold, so. People they, break light bulbs. They cut off their toes. Etc. Etc. At a certain point, they resort to cannibalism. Well, and they take glee in all of these acts because the worse they can make their narrative sound, the more they think they'll they'll profit in the end. And of course, they have all fucked with the locks before before things got dire. And of course, they start dying one by one. But then Polania can't muster the uh, energy to kill them all off, so he gets down to eleven and then ends it. Because the twist at the end, at the very, very end. And this whole book has been focusing on how, in each of their personal stories, the demon that bedeviled them and ruined their lives was not actually any external force or villain. That we really just construct villains, but the thing that ruins us is us. There is no real oppressor. You choose to be where you are. And you choose your suffering in order to create your own narrative. And then at the end... Mr. Whittier isn't dead, actually. No, he he faked his death with the help of Mrs. Clark, who for some reason never told anybody this, right up until she died. And then he just lets them out and chooses one of them to come out with him. To start all over again, because there's always one survivor, because- And for some reason, it's always a really young woman. Huh, wild how that works. Except she doesn't survive, because, you know, you can't leave. You can't leave. Yeah. And then they lock themselves up again to suffer more for the the fame, which will never happen because they've locked themselves away. And the reason Mr. Whittier has done all of this is because he's terrified of death and he wants one of them to hate him so much that they come back to him as a ghost and prove that death exists, uh, that, you know, the afterlife exists. Which I will admit... I really like that idea. I think it's bullshit once you think once you start to pick apart his scheme and the 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 mechanics of how he survived even at all, but like as just an isolated image, I like that. That that is some effective horror movie shit. I don't know, maybe it's just as somebody who has had a very lifelong intense fear of death. I just I find his character so bullshit on every level. Oh yes, it is. Like when we learn his story it just makes it even dumber. Because, of course, we can't trust any of these stories because they're all just the narratives that these characters are uh, saying. So perhaps they're confessions. Or perhaps they're the stories they keep telling themselves. There are genuine glimpses of really cool, if not good, at least interesting ideas in this novel that get lost when the book then crawls back up its own ass. Well, and they're also weird because there are, like, shared pieces of world building between these stories that don't make sense. Because none of these people have ever met each other or worked in the same... Uh, like. Right. So it's it, so it shapes into, like, an alternate reality that, for some reason, started out looking the same as ours and is not well thought through. 
Like the fact that apparently every religious capital on the planet has been bombed and nobody's reacting to that in 2005. It's very thought experiment which is good for a short story. But... And like, I assume the implication of that story was supposed to be that that's just where, where he took off into fantasy and that their revolution never really came to anything. But, but the shared fantasy folklore aspect of the interactions. Right. Either these stories have to visibly contradict each other or you have to be willing to think through the implications of what you're saying. Yeah. And it doesn't quite do either because you were mentioning that this book feel, the copy editing on this feels weird. Yeah, the, the copy editing on this book isn't great because you get a lot of very odd, like, surface level errors. Things that should have been caught in copy and proof. And I honestly think that at some points it's because the copy editor was not comfortable looking directly at it. Because you have things like people wearing yellow swim trucks. Typos go through, but there's just stuff that shouldn't have gotten through. If, if it had a clear trajectory from stories that are fairly grounded to stories that Into are completely... Into fabulism. <laughs> uh-huh. Because there are points in the structure, too, where it's like... At a certain point in the book, it breaks the for you know the the fourth wall around these stories and brings us back into the theater, and then it'll build the fourth wall back up again when it feels like that should be a crucial turning moment where all of this begins to mush together, and it feels wasted. Yeah, and it definitely it also has a very annoying ha- a couple of habits where the story overall is narrated in the first person collective. Like, we, the inhabitants, we, the group consciousness, it's it's so wannabe Faulkner, I die. But it's a collective narrator, but it also speaks to you, the audience, frequently. Like, the second person is constant, especially in the short stories. It also bothers me that there's no stylistic variation in the short stories, which are supposedly narrated by these people. But, like, Miss America is a scriptwriter, and her story is not a script. And the word choice and all. They all all sound the same. Yeah. Like, and there's colloquialisms and comparisons that just don't make sense. Like, Baroness Frostbite, who spent her entire adult life working as a bartender at a mountain cafe, she specifically uses the simile of um, a guy looking as white as sushi rice. Which, like, in the, it would have been, like, the 80s. Was, like, the last time she came down from this this very remote American mountain cafe. And I'm not saying she can't have had sushi, but... But that's not, like, what the go-to for her brain would be. Yeah. Because it, it would have been, like, a one-off thing. Yeah. Probably. It's Joss all just Whedon-y. Chuck. Yeah, Joss Whedon-y, where everybody has the same voice, because this is the voice that I think is cool. Or Cassandra Clare. No, that's because... Well, yeah, because it's all the same voice Joss Whedon thinks sounds cool. I was going to say, it must sound like a, couple, a lot of different voices on account of... <laughs> uh, the most famous story in this is definitely Guts, which is the very first story in the book. And it's so... He's so proud of it that he wrote an entire afterword about it. This afterword includes boasting about the time he triggered a friend with uh, with one of his stories, and her therapist then came to him and asked to read it so they could help with her therapy. 
he, all of this is framed in light of my th- story was so scary. My story is so rad and powerful, not she wrote something that triggered somebody. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'll admit, again, I, I think I'm fairly inured to horror at this point in my life. It still made me feel actually physically ill. Yeah, but it's not horror. That's true. I'm it's gonna come out. down on this one. It's not horror. You and Stephen King, huh? His, he's got a whole thing in on writing about how you can, it's really easy to gross somebody out, but like horrifying somebody is hard. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think the story is horror. I think it's playing on a lot of very visceral fears as well as viscera. Heyo. It's playing on gross things and it's playing on fears specific to queer youth. But. And the 15 year olds who are reading this book. The, yeah. The queer 15 year olds who are reading this book. But I don't think it's horror. Okay. I think it's just nasty. Yeah, because I feel if it were horror, I feel like the there are horrifying elements that that. I really wish I could have justified doing like a cocktail with carrot juice, mm. and called it the invisible carrot. Okay, but that this story does encapsulate the most adolescent fear of all time, which is that the your dumb... parents will know you jerk off. Uh huh. The par- your parents will know about the weird horny thing you did, and it'll follow you till you're thirty, and you'll still care exactly as much as you do now. Yeah. Like, that's a powerful adolescent fear. Right. And, and, like, that's the fear in this story. But then he just ripples it outward. And and, makes and apparently it... this is based on, like, real stories he knew from friends. And, he, and he they're hairdressers. These, and he knew these stories were so powerful that he knew he would never die until he got this story into print. It's about a dude who jerks off on a pool drain and gets his intestines pulled out. Which and granted, also then his sister gets an abortion because he's been jerking off in the pool. Corn. Corn. There's corn and peanuts in there. Because he has to chew his way off of the pool drain. And granted, that's upsettingly disgusting. And he also has two other friends that had jerk-off accidents. And that's it. That's the short, that, That's the story. The, the kicker is his sister gets an abortion. But and and this has wrecked his life because he has so little lower bowel that he doesn't digest things the same way most people do. So, so they this blew his chances at an athletic scholarship, and he's small and skinny. That's this, it. That's the most famous story in this book. Yeah, and this leads off the book. And it's, I mean, it is upsetting. It's upsetting and grotesque to read. Yeah, but I just, I don't think it's horror. I don't, and it's hard for me to explain why, except I just don't think it's horror. I think it's uncomfortable. But I think it's uncomfortable in a literary fashion. And this is the odd book where a literary book is trying to masquerade its way into the horror genre. (laughs) Fair enough. It does feel like it belongs in a Lars von Trier movie, but not like Antichrist. Yeah. It's not the same kind of It belongs in a Lars von Trier movie, not a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. So then after that, we've got uh, the, the foot massage assassin. Yeah, foot massage assassin. Really, all the crunchy hippies can be bought out by capitalism, too. Yep. But we all die. And then there's Miss America. The story- her, her sin is that she used to be fat, and then she stopped being fat, which means she's superficial, because she should have just been fat. But also being fat is bad. Uh-huh, because boy, does this novel hate fat people. So much. But also, yeah. Like, it's his go-to descriptor to make somebody grotesque. Mm-hmm. It's... It's like he's not even thinking about how much he hates fat people. It's just the first thing he thinks of when making somebody gross. 
But his his whole makes you think down it description of Miss America is she has this you know before photo of her from when she was a young kid and was fat and the the only difference between the biggest difference between her then and her now is in the photo she's smiling. Okay, that's tired. Yeah, and it's so and it's weird because it gives the vibe that she suddenly decided to have an eating disorder in her twenties just at random. But she she sells exercise wheels on TV and fucks a dude who's an asshole and gets pregnant. The entire thrust of that story is her having a conversation with a guy in a green room. And he's a dick to her. And then she's in love with him. Yeah, and then she's fallen madly in love with him because girls always fall for assholes. It is. And it has that scintillating grasp of, of the feminine mind that comes from a Redditor who's also gay. <laughs> this is very much the two genders are Reddit and Tumblr, and Reddit is right. Oh yeah, this has a little bit of that two thousands South Parky compassion is contemptible aura yeah. to it. Yeah, all all compassion is just faked for for kudos. Yeah. Uh, after that, we have Lady Bag Lady, which is rich people doing poverty tourism, but but more literally. And it should have been a lesbian story, but it's not because he doesn't have that much thought about feminine sexuality, but she definitely should have been, it should have been her that witnessed the crime with her girlfriend, Inky. And apparently all he knows about rich people and all he knows about fashion is people saying things are the opposite thing now. The whole joke of the story is pink is the new black. Truly, being in public is the new anonymity. And it's what a hot fucking take. Uh, then we have the Earl of Slander, who is the journalist yeah. who ruins a guy's life. Dude dies, and he retroactively writes him to be uh, well. He murders the dude, and then retroactively writes him to be a pedophile and monster. And then his dog dies because irony. You murdered your veterinarian. It's. Kind of a non-story. Most of these stories involve contract killing in one way or another, which makes me think it started out as a collection about contract killing. And, and then... wasn't enough to fill the plot. Yeah. <laughs> and then he reworked it to involve, uh, like, six other random short stories. And then there is the Mr. Whittier story. Right. Which when, I hate. I It's... I hate of, it so bad. I feel like the I feel like if Chuck Palahniuk was here now, he'd hate it. Like he'd laugh at us for being pearl clutching prudes who just don't get it, man. Because haha, it's happening to Karens. So apparently, <laughs> it's the fact that it, it, that it specifies that he's done this like a dozen times with the brain of a thirteen-year-old. Yeah, so Mr. Whittier is has a, progeria. Uh-huh. And he's been pulling this racket with volunteers uh, and saying, ah, it's so sad. I just, I'm going and I never had a chance to have sex. I would, I'd love to experience it once before I die. So he's manipulating these women into thinking he's an 18-year-old with progeria who lives in a nursing home. And so then they have pity sex with him. And he's like, haha, by the way, I'm actually underage. And he blackmails them. And there's so much contempt for specifically, like, middle class white women who have college degrees. Which like, I it's mean, focused entirely on saying that middle class white women with college degrees are the dumbest people on the planet. Now, granted, there's a lot of reasons to have contempt for middle class white women with college degrees. Looking but, at the last election. But... but 
he seems to specifically think that only that, that the only reason they have degrees is because they are in fact stupid but need things to do with their time. Yeah. They have nothing to do with their time. It, it hates them for all the wrong reasons. Like he's imagining this sort of 1950s mm-hmm. household where the man works and, and the woman just sits home. And really, her going to school at all was a waste, because she is so stupid and useless. And she's just going to marry and drop out of the field, so why would we hire her? It's gross. Yeah. And and then he rapes these women by deception and reveals that he's, in fact, younger than they thought. He's only 13. He's 13 in this book, where he has blackmailed hundreds of thousands of dollars out of, like, a dozen women after raping them by deception. And done at least two of these writers' retreats. Yeah, and has set up these bizarre machinations for this to happen, and also somehow busted out of the care home that his parents put him in. Yeah, that is, he's supposedly 13, but the, he did an entire three-month, another entire three-month writer's retreat with another group of people, and did not get caught, and then had the time to get together another one. Yeah, and set Cassandra Clark free. And for her to die. Yeah, and... It keeps dis- discussing Cassandra Clark as 15, even though I feel like she should have turned 16 at some point or should have been 14 at the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. The timelines are not great. Yeah. And I'm somebody who gets dumb and fuzzy with timelines because I'm careless about that shit. But like... But I'm super picky about it. <laughs> if you're going to have a book that is about playing with time and timelines, you might want to double check that shit. Again, there's there's so many stories in here that are, that it's like, well, that's gross, but not for the reason you're trying to gross me out with. Yeah, he's trying to gross me out with, like, the idea of... Old people having sex? Of grotesque old person bodies attacking firm young flesh. The way a lot of hentais do it as a humiliation thing. Right, with ugly bastard porn. Yeah. and But not the pedophilia angle. Yeah. Uh, so next is the Duke of Vandals. He's an artist who puts his paintings up in museums and then an art critic hires him to kill other artists and then they'll make him famous because they want to drive up the value of those artists' paintings. But don't you see he spent so long chasing fame that his work's not any good anymore? Mm-hmm. It really makes you think. It doesn't. It doesn't. I- I'm not thinking about this. <laughs> And then the, the next one is the first of three stories by Mrs. Clark. So, Mrs. Clark has big grotesque boobies. The early 90s. Back in the early 90s, for some godforsaken reason, she and her husband, Nelson, for some reason they thought that, like, everybody was just making amateur porn. And that they were hot, so they, they would make an amateur porn, and that's the only way we'll be able to afford to have a kid. So they, they make the the porno. And there's something it, interesting there where he says they use up their lifetime share of attraction to one another during these during this this shoot that they do by themselves in their house with the rented equipment. Yeah, I've seen that art film. But yeah, you're right. It's like the germ of an interesting idea. Yeah. And it's like because they only have the camera for so many days, so they have to do like this marathon f- fuck fest. And by the end of it, they, they're tired of looking at each other and they're all swollen and sore. And then they look at the footage and they're like, oh shit, this is bad. Yeah, we're not good at this and we look horrible. And and then he leaves, but she's pregnant. Uh-huh. There is no judgment on him for this. Nope. Yeah, it, it is squarely on her 
for wanting to do this. Even though he's the one who suggested it and pressured her into it, including the implants and everything. Yep. And then we mock her relentlessly for having implants and plastic surgery in general. But this story does have a line that it's, boy, the hottest fucking take. She falls into a deep depression after looking at the footage. And she says, just lying in bed day after day, Mrs. Clark says, you realize it's not wooden stakes that kill vampires. It's all the emotional baggage and letdowns they have to carry around for century after century. Holy shit, that's a great idea for a book. Wouldn't that make, make an amazing fucking book? If only somebody had thought to do that 20 years ago. 30. 30 years ago. Literally 30 years. <laughs> Literally 30 years. And it's presented with no hint of irony, that sentiment. Which is what so much of this book has for it. It's like, if... It's ironizing these sentiments. But, like, also no sense of awareness of other people having said these things and these certain thoughts not actually being edgy anymore. Like, it truly thinks it's every breath is the edgiest thing you've ever heard. Yeah. Okay, then we have Director Denial. Um, Director Denial worked for a police department. One of the employees named Cora Reynolds knows that the officers are... Basically, the real problem is that they're taking advantage of police equipment, including drugs and stuff. But the whole question of the story is, again, a germ of an interesting idea, which is about objectification. On the flip side, personification. Yeah, objectification and personification. And she has no emotional connections to people, so she personifies objects and animals. So basically, there is this comical fuck up that could never happen in life, but it's like, necessary. Literally, for the story to there's happen. not enough money in the world for this to happen. Uh, they wear out the anatomically detailed detailed dolls that they use for like kids who survived sexual assault. To you know, you, you take out the doll and say, "Where did it? T- where where did they touch you?" So See, they didn't even use a detailed doll for me. That you just got the you just got the it was just, one. It was just like a regular doll. Oh. The more you know. They're just like, what general area? Oh. So you're saying this story is some bullshit. I don't know. Probably some departments that are competent have those, but... Maryland, no, huh? (laughs) Well, not when I was... But... (laughs) So those are out the window, and they put Cora in charge of getting new ones. And she fucks up and gets anatomically correct dolls instead. So she buys a couple of, of real dolls by accident from Russia. And they're, like, super, super detailed real dolls, like, with fingernails and hair and... And, like, high-quality material. Like, something that could never fucking happen because you would never... Because between the cost for risk of this shady, shitty website and the the, the money into the, the materials, it would cost... It would cost thousands of dollars. But this was somehow the cheapest option for anatomically correct dolls she found on the web, and she didn't notice that the number is absurd cheaper than buying like tiny felt cheaper dolls. than buying a piece of felt with, and just sewing it yeah with a little sewn penis on it or what have you yeah um but also there's this theme in it about um a recessa annie doll but we're not calling it that we're calling it a breather betty doll even though we're still retaining the urban legend about it being the death mask of that chick who drowned in a river in france Yep. Having previously been used as a fuck doll by officers at this precinct. And she took it home. 
mm-hmm. and personified it. And so as soon as these dolls come in, uh, all of the, apparently every single officer in this department immediately starts fucking these child dolls. Yeah. It's very upsetting. It is. But not in an interesting way. No, just in sort of a blunt, like it, it very quick, the initial shock of it is somehow very upsetting. Like this is, I think, a story where his this, his specificity of detail right, works. Right, but this being my, my second read through, though, it wasn't nearly as powerful. Mm-hmm. Like... I still found Cora an interesting character, but I didn't find the situation he placed her in to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, director Denial just, she kept ignoring the situation until Cora snaps, steals the dolls, and kills herself in a fiery wreck. But her cat survived. And that is the cat that director Denial has brought to this retreat and will ne- later be eaten by Miss America. And no surprise, the cat d- dies. Like, yeah. That's... Of course and, the cat dies. And he's using the cat to say some sort of thing about how we define ourselves as human through non-human encounters. And so the lack of presence of animals allows us to descend into bestiality because we can't define ourselves against them. And something, something, Villa Diodati. But it doesn't work because he so clearly hates cats. Right. We never really get attached to the cat unless, like, you're already... You know, you love cats. He doesn't yeah. actually put work into. No, he just describes the cat as like a fur source, like an irritating source of hair. And, and like, cat. I feel bad about the cat. Yeah, same. It's a dead cat. That's sad. Yeah. But it's not earned by the narrative unless you're coming in with that investment. Yeah. And like that image of like the little bones picked clean and everything, that, that's affecting to me. But that's because I had a cat die. A, a year ago a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and because we were renting i couldn't bury her and i didn't want to cremate her so i had i had her skeletonized mm-hmm. because that was the best way i could keep her remains till such time as i could dispose of them properly but like that's not a common experience and it's not something that i think right. he's handling well it's not an evocative image for the average person yeah uh, next is Reverend Godless. I hate this story. It's bad. Uh, basically, this dude is a militant atheist who got together with this, the, these two ex-marines who are saving up money to buy a plane so that they can fly it into the headquarters of this major religious conference. So they can do the start of, of Captain America Civil War. But the way that they're raising the money is that it's the dumbest way possible. The dumbest fucking way possible. And yet it's somehow like a worldwide coordinated effort. Yeah, these two dudes dress up as drag queens and loudly lip sync to obnoxious uh, music. Feminine music. Mm-hmm. By, you know, Dolly Parton and, and Patty and all that shit. And pay five, you know, people pay five bucks or whatever to sock them in the face. Because, ha transphobic violence. It's funny. And part of the joke is feminists love to hit them. Oh, and they somehow spontaneously start growing boobs because femininity is contamination. I want you, this is, I feel like this this passage for me sums up the entire fucking book and its contempt for anything like compassion with this straw man. One of their last shows in Missoula, Montana, a girl's, a girl's steps up. Yeah, see yeah. what I was saying? You're right. This is essentially a random passage. Mm-hmm. A girl steps out of the crowd to tell them they're hateful bigots, that they're encouraging violent hate crimes being acted out against the gender-conflicted members of our otherwise peaceful pluralistic society. 
Weber stands there, cut off in the middle of singing Buttons and Bows, the spiffy Doris Day version, not the cheesy Dinah Shore version. He's wearing a strapless blue satin sheath with all his chest hair, his shoulder and arm hair billowing from wrist to wrist like a lush boa of black feathers, and he asks this girl, So you wanna buy a punch or not? Flint's one step away at the head of the line, taking people's money, and he says, Take your best shot, he says. Half price for chicks. I like that you've decided on a New York accent. I'm I'm committing to this awful bit. And this and the girl, she just looks at them, tapping one of her feet in its tennis shoe, her mouth clamped shut, and pulled way over to one side of her face. Finally, she says, Can you fake sing that Titanic song? And Flint takes her text bu- ten bucks and gives her a hug. For you, he says, we can play that song all night long. And that was the night they finally topped out the fifty grand for the mission. Oh, th- that story also has a women can't take a punch joke. Right, because that's the reason these two dudes start dressing in drag. And for some reason, he's scared to say Celine Dion. Like, he's name-dropping every other performer. But Celine's got lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he name-drops Barbara, either. She yes, was very he does. Ups- oh, yeah, She hadn't yet been upset about her house, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, like well, this isn't the internet. Excuse. <laughs> like that... And I don't think he name-drops Liza. Oh, no. This is clearly not the type of gay culture he's into. No. Like, there's... I hate that passage so much because it's... All of it, It's so convinced that all of you, you know, all of you are just... It's virtue signaling. It is, oh, all you virtue signaling feminists who don't actually believe this shit, you're just pretending to be better than us and you're nasty too. Yeah. But also there's the weird, like, femininity is contamination thing happening here. Because the scariest image he can come up with is, number one, boobs. Mm-hmm. But number two, boobs, where he doesn't think boobs should be. Right. It's Bob has bitch tits syndrome. Yeah. Spotted. Like very frightened of breasts. Uh, yeah, that story sucks. Next one is, and that's the story where it supposedly ends with this success of the mission, but clearly that can't have happened, because otherwise... This would be quite the alternate reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, next is the matchmaker, who I don't even remember. Um, the matchmaker paid some guy to fuck his wife. That's right. Uh, he paid uh, a sex worker to have sex with his, with, his, with his ex, and then dump her so that she would feel like she didn't deserve anything better and would settle for him but also he has this horrible family story about how the murder of a romani woman during world war ii was the greatest thing to ever happen to his family because it saved their lives yep the the murder of a romani woman during her sexual assault by a nazi was a really great thing for his family because they lived and even though she died and it's, it's very upsetting and the nazi guy died because he accidentally cut his dick off if you're wondering whether that imagery will come back, don't worry. It will. In Chekhov's another different racist way. Chekhov's cock gun. <laughs> uh, then's the next, uh, then's the nightmare box, which is the, the closest to, like, an actual horror story. Yeah, I almost liked the nightmare box. Except that it's super gross. Yeah, like, the details drag it down, but the concept of it is, I think, solid. It definitely feels like something I could have seen on an episode of late night anthology television mm-hmm. in the 90s. It has a very Tales for the Crypty kind of. Yeah. So this is also Mrs. Clark. Uh, her daughter is now a teenager and she has been forever changed because of this event when she was 15. So when she's 15, they, for some reason, the, this single mom who 
her husband told her they couldn't afford to have a baby unless they did porn, and then they didn't do porn. Like they never sold the tape. Yeah, she burned the tape. Um, For some reason, she and her daughter are at a gallery opening, and there's a lot of really gross focus on Cassandra as the sexiest woman there, despite only being 15, and how she's wearing the strapless dress that she's trying desperately to hold up by keeping her arms clamped at her sides, which is a vibe. But also, he doesn't seem to be super clear on how the dress fits because it's loose or tight at any given moment, depending on how much she wants people to see her titties. Which is gross. It's super gross. But part of the exhibition is this thing that looks like a camera, but when you look into it, if the timing is right, it gives you clinical depression. That's what it does. Uh huh. Yeah, it's always. It gives you depression. It's always ticking, and the second it stops, one person can look into it and see some kind of unknowable sight. Yeah. And this is also almost interesting because it shows that Mrs. Clark is doing, like, really... She she did a lot of research and sort of figured out an idea about how it works. Mm -hmm. Which I think was a window into a very interesting character that is not played through. But that image of... Like, that's genuinely an upsetting image of what's so what's so disturbing about this thing is it forces you to go through this horrible thing alone. And that's almost tied back to that, the twist at the end with the, the ghost bullshit, where, like, what's really scary about dying is that we all do it alone and we, we don't know and we can't share it with anybody. Isn't that Donnie Darko? Yes. <laughs> yes, this book is just Donnie Darko. <laughs> I demand a man in a rabbit suit. I mean, that might have been one of the costumes. Yeah. Because as the heat fails, um, they all dress up in, like, the funny leftover vaudeville costumes inside this theater. Do you see they're putting on shows for no one? They're all taking on roles and performing. And then one day, uh, Cassandra walks away from the- cuts her eyelashes off with nail scissors and then walks away from the house literally naked. Which is when she presumably meets Mr. Whittier. Yeah. And then um, Mrs. Clark doesn't see her for three months. Meanwhile, since Mr. Whittier's dead, everybody in the present timeline uh, starts narrativizing how Mrs. Clark is the one torturing them as they cut their fingers off and pop their nails off and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very boring. Yeah, uh, Sister Vigilante story, which is bowling ball. Boring. Yeah, Sister Vigilante chucks a bowling ball out of windows so that it hits people in the face because that way people won't commit crimes because they'll be so scared of the killer. Because really, a little bit of violence is the only thing. Yeah, so it's Death Note. Yeah. (laughs) That story is Death Note. Uh, Jesus Christ, I think the next story is Comrade Snarky. Let me check. Uh, No, it's Chef Assassin. Right. Okay, I like this story. This one's funny. This one's a fun comedy story, and it's the only one that's structured differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's a letter from this guy talking about how much he loves this company's knives. It's Hannibal. It's, yeah. It, it's Hannibal if he got smart. This is cut Hannibal Lecter a check. And, you know, he's he's done so many murders using your incredible knives. and But, you know, he's bound to be caught someday, and for the right amount of money... If you help him evade the cops. He will offer an excellent endorsement for your competition and say that he's always used their subpar products when flaying food critics. And this is also just fuck critics. Yep. Love it. Love it. It's my favorite. Loved it so much when it was in Velvet Buzzsaw. Love when- This is just Velvet Buzzsaw. I mean, yeah, it kind of is. 
I like this more than Velvet Buzzsaw, but well, I I I like parts of this better than Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, fair. Like like the like the Nightmare Box. That's what I thought Velvet Buzzsaw was actually going to be. Was the Nightmare Box? Good shit. Here, like, my thing with fuck critic stories is that they're never about anything interesting about like the burden critics should have and elevating or shutting down marginalized voices or anything interesting there like that it's just they said something mean about my art because they can't do art themselves and my feelings are hurt <laughs> i hate that shit anyway <laughs> but yeah chef the chef assassin story it's although, funny but, it's like, funny as hell it probably shouldn't be in here because it's the only one that blatantly breaks the the typographical formula right and they should all do that yeah like commit commit to the bits how did you like how did you orally tell this story that's a letter yeah um anyway cannibalism starts to ensue they eat somebody's ass and not in the fun way no and there's this then it's the fucking comrade snarky story and there's this theme where now everything smells like the reek of buttered popcorn from the microwave because they cooked ass in it but and he specifically says in his afterwards that the the reason he wanted to do this was to make horrifying images out of common things like theater popcorn but that's not theater popcorn having worked in a theater there are so many little details here that just don't fit with how theater operations work and i know you you've also worked in a theater and like just the way he's constructed this building it doesn't feel there's too many rooms and not a sensible it's a spooky mansion not a theater mm-hmm like, it doesn't, the way the rooms string together don't make any sense. Because it's the Mask of Red Death. Uh-huh. It's the Mask of Red Death, but then he wanted it to be a theater, too. Because of the thems. Uh, yeah, Speaking Bitterness is a very upsetting story, and I hate it so fucking much. It's so, so fucking bad. Uh, this woman is at a support group for women, and a trans woman comes to it, and they- It's w- not actually even clear that she actually is a trans woman. Because their whole complaint with her is that she's too feminine. Like, it's actually not even clear that she is a trans woman because he's trying to say something about how women are just as bad or worse than men and just want the opportunity to assault femininity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they accuse her of... They they use viscerally upsetting turf logic that you could see on Twitter.com today. Mm-hmm. Accuse her of, of infiltrating their space as a man in disguise and force her to strip naked while they look at her vagina. And then they violently sexually assault her with a uh, flashlight. And I think there's a rape whistle mentioned for irony well, points. She, she has the rape whistle. It is, number one, it is attempting to be like a dunk on turfs, but he's using it as a dunk on feminists. That feminists really just want to be able to commit sexual assaults just like men. They mm-hmm. just all want the opportunity. That's all that feminism is really, is wanting to get that equal opportunity to be off. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what Anne Rice believes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they, this woman is always referred to with her name in quotes and misgendered consistently. Yeah. Uh, they have this horrible bullshit sentiment about how she's, you know, she's super feminine and it looks just like femininity as imagined by men. Yeah. I hate it. It's, it's a really upsetting story. Especially, and again, on the one hand, you want to say that, like, at least he's trying to dunk on turfs, except that he's not really. That's not even part of his concern here. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and it's so, even if that were, it's so thoroughly rolls it enacts that by violence. doing violence mm-hmm. to this th- this woman's body 
And there's some fucking I need to read. Yeah, this so this all starts out uh, because... And she says uh, she doesn't okay. have any any upsetting sexual assault stories. Yeah. We tell him that consciousness raising is rooted in complaint, what so many co- people call a bitch session in communist China in the years after Mao's revolution. An important part of building a new culture was allowing people to complain about their past. At first, the more they complained, the worse the past would seem. But by venting, people could start to resolve the past. By bitching and bitching and bitching, they could exhaust the drama of their own horror stories, grow bored. Only then could they accept a new story for their lives, move forward. This is why we come here every Wednesday night to this bookstore back room without windows to sit in folding metal chairs around a big square table. The revolution called this speaking bitterness. As though a fucking trans woman doesn't have more pain to speak. Well, and that's how he's trying to introduce the question that maybe maybe she's not even trans. Maybe she's cis and didn't even deserve this in the first place. Like there is this vibe that it's worse if they're doing this to a cis woman. Like One that's of their what, own. Like, that's yeah. what they really have to question, is mm-hmm. did we do this to a cis woman? That would be the worst thing. Again, I read that story, put the book down, and then had to go away for a while. It's real bad. Uh, fucking Agent Tattle- But, you know, right after that story, she dies. She bleeds to death, so yeah. that made me happy. Because they ate her ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she passed out, and <laughs> they butchered her without checking- they were just like, ah, she's dead. She ain't moving. And then in a very Hannibal move, she wakes up so they feed her her own ass before she notices that it's missing. <laughs> and then she dies. <laughs> Delightful. Next is Agent Tattletail, which is the which guy Which is who's... all people on welfare are frauds. Yep. That's it. That's the story. Uh, because he was, and that's until he became a snitch- and then he almost got killed by a woman he was spying on. Well, he, he he was, but then he murdered the person who was going to catch him. So then he stole that guy's identity. And then somebody caught him spying on her. And he confessed the whole thing for reasons, because he assumed she was going to kill him. Instead, she blackmailed him. Yep. But all people on welfare are frauds. Mm-hmm. All people with, with disabilities are lying so that they can get them good, good pills that are just doled out. It's good. Great that ableism. Mm, that ableism, though. Uh, missing link. Jesus Christ. Super racist. Th- this uh, indigenous guy is talking to a woman at a bar. She's an anthropology student, and we hate her because she is an intellectual. But also, she's super racist. Uh-huh. And she wants to fuck this guy because she's heard that people from his tribe are, like, super strong ultra people. Like, ultra they're, humans. They're, they're Bigfoots. They're werewolves. Bigfoots and werewolves. And his sister died in a plane crash, which is what makes her think that this tribe... Right. And then he kills her. Yep. And then he takes her home to his family, and they presumably tear her limb from limb, because they are, in fact, Bigfoots. Except that I assume that's not what happened, really? This is, again, one of those situations where the resolution points to this being a world not like ours, but he he never hulks out. Ever? (laughs) He chokes to death on dick? It neither commits to fabulism, nor does it explicitly contradict these weird endings. So it's just kind of... There. If it were explicitly set in a world where every religious headquarters in the world had been bombed, and also Bigfoots are real, that would be more interesting. Uh But yeah, the story's super, super racist. But he also gets at the Scots, so... Every description of the mis- the missing link in every other chapter is also super racist. Yeah. 
And he's also not really present in the narrative at all until this chapter and then till he di- when he dies. Dies choking on dick. That's his last... That's what the matchmaker chops his own dick off. Mm-hmm. And the missing link tries to eat it because starving and chokes. Uh, then we have the third Mrs. Clark story. I like some of the imagery in this. It has an absurd ending, though. Yes, it does. So many of these stories start with an absurd conceit as the central, confidently asserted reason why things happen, and it makes no fucking sense. But um, Cassandra came back after three months. Uh, She was covered in blood and was missing fingers and toes and teeth and wouldn't tell anybody who did this to her. And then she got a little goldfish in a bowl and she would draw pictures of it and of birds. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Clark hated her because she was not her spunky child. And this loses some strength for me because Cassandra was already hit by the magical depression box. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense of a change. It's just some more. And also she's missing a few uh, appendages now. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't really work for me because it wasn't this experience of being in Mr. Whittier's torture chamber that we make for ourselves. And it's also not clear why she would be interested in torturing herself for fame if she became depressed from the depression box, unlike everybody else in there. And it also introduces this weird element of we tell stories and we're our own monsters, but also once we, if that drive deserts us, there's nothing left for us to do but go out, lay down and die. Because that's exactly what she does. She goes out. No, she doesn't. Mrs. Clark murdered her daughter. Did she? Yeah, she, she poisoned her with sleeping pills in her oatmeal. And then put her body there. And then the cops discovered it and just left it there for a couple weeks instead of doing an autopsy in the hopes that the person who killed her would come back and speak into the microphone they put near it, which is apparently standard procedure. And that's why Mrs. Clark is on the run. But she also found a little card in her daughter's room that said writer's retreat. So that's why she's here. She realized that Mr. Whittier had been complicit in the death of her daughter And apparently she was willing to help him conceal his death, even as everything went totally batshit, and she died. Yeah, what was her plan? I don't know. The book doesn't know either. The book doesn't care about her after it's finished writing the story of Cassandra. And there's some really nice decay imagery in there. It is some uh, evocative stuff. I feel like I've used that word too much in the last hour. And the mention of her, like, curled on the bed of moss is nice. Mm Mm-hmm. As you, you know, as your insides boil and you start to leak. and But this is essentially the story of an abusive mother murdering her daughter because she doesn't conform to the standards of femininity and popularity that her mother wanted because she's depressed. Which is a story, but not one that fits in with A, the narrative of Mrs. Clark that we've seen up to now, or Cassandra, or the book's views on femininity overall. Or the overall structure of the book, because we come back to this story three times. But like, w- why? Yeah. What is structure? How do? <laughs> anyway, Countess Foresight. Yeah. This uh, one's fucking stupid. Countess Foresight is out of prison with a wrist bracelet. And for some reason, the cops never come looking for her. Oh, this is the one with, yeah, okay. With Marilyn Monroe's baby. Yeah. This is a story that both gives Marilyn Monroe credit for being smart and also claims that she was totally without morals and a terrible person. And a grasping, greedy fame whore. Yep. So, you know, just uh, just piss a little more on that grave while we're at it, while we're here. Yeah. Countess Foresight was psychic. She's not psychic. She get, uh, she desperately wants what this guy says is the preserved fetus that Marilyn Monroe had in her body when she was murdered. No, no, that, that she lost 
while shooting some like it hot. Right. And as she kills him to get it, it turns out it's not actually a fetus. And it was in an antique mall with lots of cameras pointing at her. The end. Womp. She shows no signs of being psychic or not psychic throughout the rest of the book. Nope. She could have been deleted. But he really wanted to do a story with a fetus. Because that's Uki. And there's also a a her-her, you feminists say it's not a person joke. That's really out of place. Uh, You know what else is out of place? The next story. Uh, Baroness Frostbite. Yeah. What the fuck is this story? So this is the woman who works in a cafe on a mountain. Yeah, in a bar at a ski lodge. And she's worked there for 20 years, ever since she did a winter there as a college student. And there are hot springs around the ski lodge that that are above boiling. And they're very deadly and people keep falling in there and dying horribly. And then she tells the story of one of them. Now, Baroness Frostbite is grotesque because she has no lips. She has a mouth and she can scream, but she has no lips. <laughs> Her gums are all drawn up and necrotic. Because the, this extremely... This religious fanatic mm-hmm. who worked as a cook... Falls in, uh, and falls partly into a spring, out, or into one of the hot springs out, out in the woods. Doesn't fall all the way in, uh, falls on her. It liquefies his legs and she can't pull away because he's just so... Say it with me, folks. Fat! fat. He's so grotesquely fat. So Chuck Palahniuk has no idea how much weight an average college-aged woman who regularly lifts kegs can handle because she can't pull away from the grip of his hands because he's just too fat and heavy. She doesn't, like, kick him or anything, but he, he dies slowly over the course of the night, so she's just trapped there by his too strong grip. And she keeps... Putting, taking mouthfuls of snow and, and and feeding the water to him because, and this is ironic because he accused her of the sin of kissing people. And now she will never be fucked. And what did she do? Um, kiss somebody. Oh, how Th- dare she? Th- that's what made her bad enough to be here. Like Miss America, who liked a guy who's a douchebag. Uh, the next story wraps up Mrs. Clark with her murdering her daughter. How did I misremember that? I was really flying through this thing by the end. <laughs> and then there is Miss Sneezy, the apocalyptic story, inadvertently. Uh, she is a typhoid Mary, basically. Yeah. She, she lives in an institute. In this island off the Puget Sound. Because apparently the U.S. government is not willing to kill people. Again. <laughs> too moral. Too moral to kill white people. So the horror is that... One day she went to school and the next day a bunch of people around her got super sick. And the thrust of this story is her talking to her guard at her door about another, a dude might be coming in who has the same infection as her, so she might get fucked. And then she decides no and just walks underwater in, in an isolation suit to Seattle and has been just walking around. And somehow she's been in the, here with these... 16 other people for three months. And they haven't died. Even though the government's been, like, taking her blood this whole time. So... Well, Miss America did get a headache right before she miscarried. But this was, like, incredibly virulent disease. That, like, causes a sudden rapid brain tumor. Mm-hmm. So that was fun to read right now. Mm-hmm. You know, she's never been fucked, and she was, you know, 18... 
when she was put away and somebody grabbed her boob one time. But now she's all gross because uh, apparently she has a constant upper respiratory infection somehow from walking in her little oxygen suit. So she's across all- the, uh, under the water. So she's always got tissues. And, you know, it's one of the, it's yet another one of those things where, like, the story is so weakened because it doesn't have any sympathy for her. and she, Nor does she feel particularly horny. It's just like, this is a thing that's supposed to happen to me that hasn't happened. Yeah. I'm supposed to be deflowered at some point. I know it's cheap of me to keep accusing him of not understanding female sexuality, but... But he doesn't? But he doesn't. Like, he, do- he doesn't write desire. He doesn't write desire for anybody. He doesn't. He just writes power dynamics. I mean, there's definitely eroticism in Fight Club, the novel. <laughs> just, you know, suppressed and sublimated. Yeah. But he doesn't write any anything involving breasts and vaginas. Not into it. Yeah. Which, Which okay. Which a very but- narrow category of people that you can conceptualize desire for. And it's even more narrowed because I guarantee... That he has no fats, no femmes mm-hmm. on his profile. Well, now he's had a partner since the nineties, so no one and else. Nobody can be knows who on that him. is. Nope. <laughs> Maybe they're horrible together. I would have to assume so. And so there's kind of this unstated but present implication that because she's been going around spreading this disease outside, that some kind of pandemic. Might be occurring out there. Yeah. And again, um, something, something, intellectuals are bullshit. Only the salt of the earth actually knows anything. Even though her dad's the one who, you know, caused the disease to be spread around in the first place by going to a town that was killed by this epidemic a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And then Mr. Whittier gets another story, which is the blatantly fictitious one about how we've discovered the afterlife is on Venus. So everybody needs to hurry up and kill themselves to get there. So that we can stop the reincarnation cycle, because if we don't have any bodies left for souls to go into, then we'll all have to be booted over to Venus immediately. Which I kind of assume, I don't know, maybe it's the way I was reading it was, this could be real, not because because there wasn't actually any afterlife on Venus, it was just this persistent death cult that had taken hold, and it's the end ideology of this whole victimization uh, complex that he's proposing. I think the uh, the actual end theme of the story is is the kicker line though, where Eve, who is pregnant with her boyfriend Adam, it's very subtle. They managed not to die with their families during the death cult and dog because of a random yeah reason. And Eve is a teenage girl who's pregnant, and she hates her stepmother Tracy. And she cups her belly, and instead of saying anything nice about this new life she's birthing, she says, I hope it's Tracy. So the end point of this story, to me, is that this validates his idea that all humans crave conflict. Mm -hmm. Because she doesn't want this new life to be someone she can love, someone she can find fellowship with, someone she cares for. She wants it to be someone she hates because it would disrupt that person's plans. I just meant more, I think you could, if if this were a book that was committing to its weird world not like ours, it could be possible if we just, if we assume that it's this grand lie that has taken hold as a national fervor, and all of a sudden there are mass suicides a la Jonestown. But yeah, no, you're completely right thematically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how he sees humanity in this book. And then they, they kill Miss Sneezy and drag her body back in because um, they haven't suffered enough 
They want to suffer more so that they can experience more pain and people will be more interested. And then they lock the door so that they will never get out and nobody ever will find them. And Mr. Whittier's upset because he has no one. And I mean, these last couple paragraphs are good enough stuff as a final image, but... Well, yes, it's great as a final image. And that brings me to the other thing that irritates me. Mm-hmm. is So much of this book is spewing ironic contempt for these people thinking about people fetishizing their pain by making it into a movie. Making it into media content. It so desperately wants to be a fucking movie, though. Desperately, yes. But then how would we get incredibly pretentious lines like uh, like these with, with, where he really drives home this whole thing that he's been wanking off about for 400 pages. If we can forgive what's been done to us, if we can forgive what we've done to others, if we can leave all of our stories behind, our being villains or victims, only then can we maybe rescue the world. But we still sit here waiting to be saved while we're still victims, hoping to be discovered while we suffer. Stop blaming the government. Stop blaming people in power. Stop blaming men. Uh, this is full-on Jordan Peterson, hardcore rationalist. I can, I'm so much more enlightened than you because I've thought harder about how you're all just imagining your own oppression shit. It's dire. And it's it bums me out because... I wish I could go back to being a teenager who was just sort of shocked and dazzled by the by the parts that work and the parts that are just like I've never read anything like this before <laughs> and I didn't notice all of the although even when I was a kid the comrade snarky story really upset me for reasons I I didn't understand. Yeah. But I wish I could go back to when this book was so important to me but I can't and we're not there. Yeah, I fully blocked out the comrade snarky story actually. I literally didn't remember it until you reminded me of it. I don't know. It it makes me a little sad. Yeah. And it's it's frustrating because, again, he is, has very specific, powerful gifts in terms of depiction. But what he's narrativizing, I just... Why? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think there are even individual short stories you could pull out of here and just read, and it would be an interesting thought experiment. I just wish he would admit that it's just a bunch of short stories. Yeah. Just admit that it's a fucking anthology and then the unevenness wouldn't be so irritating. Or chop it down to ten characters. Oh god, it needed to be fewer characters. A huge compliment of those characters did not need to be there and did not add anything to the sections in the present. Like, if we're talking about purely plot function, you need Mr. Whittier, Mrs. Clark, uh, Miss America, Comrade Snarky, Chef Assassin... Those are all the ones you really Sneezy. need. You need Miss Sneezy. So you need most of the women, but they also do die grotesquely. Mm-hmm. And then you may need maybe two or three other guys to pad out the plots. Yeah. Director Denial, maybe. Yeah. Like, you really only need seven characters, and maybe you pad out two, more, two or three yeah, more. Yeah, you need a few more to die, but, like, 12 tops. Or 13. Do you yeah? Do you want to go with unlucky thirteen, or do you want to go with apostles? For that's thirteen as well. That's true. I always forget about Josh, or excuse me. I thought Josh was your boy. I I I was on my way to making a Christopher Moore reference, but I fucked it up. (laughs) Lamb sure was a book. Uh, yeah. You you really don't ship it though. I mean, listen, power to people who who ship it, but like Jesus didn't fuck, man. (laughs) 
It's hilarious. Face icon, to me. Jesus Christ. That's hilarious to me that, like, that's the one thing <laughs> religiously that you cannot handle. <laughs> that I can't let go of. That I. <laughs> the most thrown out Catholic. This far and no further. <laughs> Jesus Christ did not fuck. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> oh, you say that like that's gonna keep. <laughs> Yeah, probably don't read this book. Even if it, if the world weren't on fire for reasons that line up with this book in superficial ways, there's so much triggering shit in here that isn't balanced out by the worthwhile shit. And it's so bleak. It's so bleak and negative that there's no vibe of hope. Like, I know that section almost sounded hopeful. No, it, it's about, that. that's ironized. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, should I read them the actual last paragraph? Yeah, the, the theme is that we won't learn to stop victimizing ourselves and one another. So they stab Miss Sneezy right before she goes out the door. Uh, now the story's split another less way, what was done to us. For now we're still here in our dim circle around the ghost light. The voice of Mr. Whittier, he's wailing outside the steel door, his fists pounding, wanting to come inside, not wanting to die alone. For now we wait, repeating our story in the museum of us, in this, our permanent dress rehearsal. How Mr. Whittier trapped us here, he starved and tortured us, he killed us. We recite this, the mythology of us. And someday soon, any day now, the world will come open that door and rescue us. The world will listen. Starting on that sun-glorious day, the whole world is going to love us. And that's the end of the book. Yeah. And the fact that the most important theme in the book is that all pain you experience is because you're inflicting it on yourself because throughout the the sequence in the present the characters all refuse to assist one another with their mutilations because that would give you an edge publicly so they are all privately injuring themselves i am down in theory for the this story of people who are embiggening their own their own narrative and wounding themselves in the process but the fact that it's globalized Mm -hmm. makes it really nasty like this is not outside people who this is stop hitting yourself mm -hmm. feminism this is not the fucking rich businessman this is not elon musk crying about how people are mean to him like if it was a story of elon musk's i would watch that and if it was about how privilege creates these narratives about how that they how they are the oppressed ones really but this is a story about how people from all walks of life as long as they're white pursue their own negativity you know i'm glad that there's only one person of color in this this is one of the few stories that might have done better to have fewer (laughs) (laughs) this book could have done by being only about white people then it could only have been offensive to gender and sexuality actually no there's no there's only straight people in here too Allegedly. Allegedly. Fair enough. Because class. Because, again, this was written before he was out. Right. I still think that Lady Bag Lady is a lesbian. She had vibes with Inky, for sure. Uh, Don't read this. (laughs) I'm sorry to end it on such a bummer note. Uh, I hope that we gave you the vicarious experience of all of this without having to experience it yourself. And I hope that you are all staying safe out there, because shit's dire right now. But Um, if you are locking yourself in a bunker, don't lock yourself in this one. Yeah, and uh, on that note, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of us on SoundCloud by searching for Trash and Treasures, or we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Trash and Treasures, 
where if you donate at $2 a month, you get Dorothy's Neato Recipe Book, where she writes down all the stuff from this show and does non-alcoholic versions of it for folks who don't want uh, alcoholic drinks. At the $5 level, we also do monthly bonus episodes, which is neat. Or you can also email us at trashandtreasurespod at gmail.com. We love to get mail. Or find us on social media if you want to get at us a little faster. We're on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com. Or we're on Twitter at TrashPod. Uh, come say hi to us. We will give you a shout out on the show this time around. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to at Royzen Radio, who uh, I, I'm so glad that us yelling about J.J. Abrams speaks to somebody else. <laughs> it warms me in my heart place. And speaking of Patreon bonuses, we've got something really special coming up uh, on our next Drunk Book Club. Yeah, uh, we have our first commission yeah, so you can actually do that through Patreon, too, if you don't want to, like, talk to us directly. We are going to be reading The Lazarus Heart, which is something I've wanted an excuse to read for a long time. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, it is the it is a novel sequel to The Crow written by Poppy Z. Bright. Yeah. That's so, right. He's back. So I, this, I think, will be interesting to us for a lot of reasons, because I'm always interested in novelizations and tie-ins to mm -hmm. properties, and I'm interested to see what Bright does when he's sort of constrained by a verse. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I am extremely excited to read this novel, actually. It will be a nice breather. So yeah, um, we're going to be reading that uh, on the whim of None Matters. Thank you. Thank you for commissioning us to do this. And that'll be on the other side of Pride when I'll be exhausted. But it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. So, uh, yeah, actually, next time next time we will be diving into Pride. So I hope that we can all enjoy a little bit of June together. Yeah, and you all decided we should do queer genre films. So fun, 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 fun. Yay. Uh, until next time, from the bottom of my heart, take care of yourselves. Bye, y'all. <laughs>